Father in heaven, Lord, I pray that as we study this evening, as we open your word, as we reflect on the past, Lord, we ask and pray that you would speak to our hearts. Speak through me, I pray, and I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I remember before I got married, back in 2013, my wife and I had a conversation, and one of the conversations she told me a little bit about her family background. She told me that her, and I've shared this story in other sermons that some of you may have heard, she shared with me that her grandfather spent time in an American internment camp, which is a polite way of saying an American concentration camp. In World War II, once Pearl Harbor had been bombed, America rounded up everyone that had Japanese blood in them. And even though both her grandparents were born in California, even though they had American passports like most of the other American Japanese, they were all rounded up and sent to internment camps in the interior of America. It's one of the ironies of World War II that whilst the Americans were liberating concentration camps in Europe, they had them in their own backyard. And she was sharing with me some of this background, some of the, 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 the stories about her grandfather who, who spent the war there, four years of the war there, her grandmother as well, and the experiences that I went through. And then I remember she said, Something like this, she said, I want you to understand this history or these stories because this forms a part of who I am. In that, that story, that history, that, that, that shared experience forms a part of, of my identity and who I resonate with today. Knowing kind of and if I didn't know that story or didn't know that, that background, which I didn't know up until that point, you could say that I only understood part of who my wife was. And then it was by understanding that that I would get a fuller picture. Those of you who are married understand that you never really get a full, full picture of your husband or your wife. It's a, it's a, it's a journey in process. But without that, I would miss something pretty big. Now this week we've been looking into a journey showing some different aspects of Adventist history, whether it's doctrinal, whether it's experiential, or whether it's just some of the stories of the people. We've been looking at some of these experiences that make who we are today as Seventh-day Adventists. Yesterday we looked at some of the, just the stories, and I just want to recap a, a few of the things that we have looked at this week. We've, had, we've, we've tried to say that some of the big questions we have in life are these three big questions. Where do we come from or where do I come from? Question number two, why am I here? And question number three, where am I going? Where am I going? And if we don't have a clear understanding of all of these, it's almost like we have a partial identity as a Christian or a partial identity as a Seventh-day Adventist. It's important for us to understand a round picture, not just theologically, but also experientially. And on the first evening, we looked at Revelation's description of God's people, and we saw how Revelation 10 
the prophecy in Revelation 10 describes the historical experience of God's people. One of the questions in the Q&A was asking about the great disappointment. And that great disappointment was prophesied at the end of Revelation chapter 10, where it said, take this book and eat it. It will be sweet in your mouth, but it will be what? Bitter in your belly. We then looked at Revelation 12 and saw the characteristics of God's people. And we looked at Revelation 14, which outlines the mission and message. And it's almost like when you look at it prophetically, Revelation 10 is where do we come from? Revelation 12 is who are we now? And Revelation 14 is where are we going or what mission or message do we have to share? And we identified what that little book in Daniel was. What's the little book in Daniel? that the angel gave to, to John, the revelator. It's Daniel, in particular. We saw a connection between Daniel 12 and Revelation 10, these two prophetic chapters that are key with our Adventist identity. And the part of the, of the book that needed to be eaten was the prophecy of Daniel chapter the prophecy that said unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And as was brought out in the Q&A time, we saw that after that prophecy, what happened to God's people? Something happened, and it's a word I describe beginning with S. Not sifting, not shaking. There's another word. Those, those ones are all correct. Ooh, careful now. <laughs> um, no, no, all of these things are kind of, the word I'm looking for, and it doesn't, it doesn't negate the words that you've mentioned, is a word called scattering. Scattering. As all these different refining of the doctrine of the sanctuary came in, it was like the scattering. It's almost like up until October 22, God's people had been this one swell mass of believers waiting for Jesus' return. And then after that, there was all of these divides and splits and theological differences and different magazines saying this, other magazines saying that, and different pioneers saying this, another one saying that. It was like a scattering taking place. And then from about 1848, then the gathering took place. And what doctrine did God choose to gather his people around again? It was the doctrine of the Sabbath. And names that were instrumental in that doctrine was Rachel Preston Oaks, Frederick Wheeler, the first Sabbath-keeping minister, the first Sabbath-keeper. T.M. Preble, Joseph Bates, these men were instrumental and women in this doctrine and writing tracts that were then read by Ellen White and Jay and Andrews and other people, and the Sabbath started to spread like wildfire. And that's what gathered God's people back together again. We looked in Revelation 12 and we saw how one of the characteristics of God's people was that, that God's remnant church would arise in the United States of America. That's the land God would choose for his church to rise up in. And one of the reasons why is because we know prophetically the, the separation of church and state and so on. And then we went to Revelation 14, as I mentioned, which outlines the message. We've also seen it is not just, it's important not just to understand the prophetic identity, 
But it's also important to understand the history behind some of these stories as well. Our church was founded in 1863, and we asked this week the question, what is the uniqueness of Adventism? What is the uniqueness of Adventism? What makes you unique? What makes you unique? Second coming? State of the dead? Sabbath? Not really. Yes, I know, though. Heavenly sanctuary? Yes, but I'll come back to it. Tithing? No. Health message? No, but yes. Spirit of prophecy? If you define it as Ellen White, yes, but the spirit of prophecy technically should not be defined as Ellen White. It should be defined as a gift of prophecy. We're not the only ones that believe in it. You might argue we're the only ones that have a true manifestation of it, but we're not the only ones who believe in it. Amen? What is the uniqueness of Adventism? As we looked at the different points, uh, I think it was on Tuesday night, I would submit to you that uniqueness of Adventism, and if you were there that night, then you've heard this already, the uniqueness of Adventism is these two doctrines intertwined together. Not separate, but together. What makes our understanding of the Sabbath unique is because we understand the Sabbath in the context of the heavenly sanctuary. We understand the Sabbath, I'll rephrase it another way, we understand the Sabbath in light of how we understand end-time events to play out through the context of the sanctuary. Your understanding of the Sabbath is very different to a Jewish understanding of the Sabbath. They just believe it's, 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 it's the Sabbath day. That's it. If they keep it, that is. Seventh-day Baptist, Sabbath, but it's not. We understand the Sabbath with an importance that not only does it need to be kept now, but one day your faith will be tested and that may be the litmus test. We understand it in its end time significance through the lens of Revelation 14, the mark of the beast. So it has much, much more significance. And last night we looked at a few stories. We looked at a few stories last night to bring the human side of the message out. Who's this lady on the screen here? Annie Smith turned down a job that offered her $1,000 a year as a 22-year-old to go and take a job at the, and we use it in almost inverted commas, at the Review and Herald. The Review and Herald was located on 175 Park something Street in Rochester, which was the house that James and Ellen White rented that they shared with 10 other young people, and the printing press was in the living room. $1,000 a year, living in a house with 10 young people, and you're not getting paid anything. She took that job and worked at the Review and Herald and was essentially the first editor because James White was traveling so much preaching. Even though his name was editor on the magazine, she was the one that kept the consistency. 
to enable the magazine to go out and act as the pastor to the early church almost. Unfortunately, she died at the age of 27 after she kept tuberculosis along with Nathaniel White, James White's brother, who also caught tuberculosis, and he was the first editor of the Youth Instructor, which would become the youth magazine that we have today. I think is Insight today. Anna White also died from tuberculosis, living in this house, serving God for nothing, eating what they could eat. Annie Smith's grave today is just a small piece of stone on the ground that says Annie in a tiny little village called West Wilton in New Hampshire. But the legacy of a life is much more impactful than that. Jay and Andrews, we looked at his story as well, how he went as a missionary. And just before he went as a missionary, unfortunately, his wife, Angeline, died. And he went as a missionary with his daughter, who was 12, his son, who was 15. And they went to Basel, Switzerland. And there they started the signs of the times, and they started the work in Europe. But his daughter... For whatever reasons, partly due to the poor diet they had after sacrificing so much of their own salary, she caught tuberculosis. He took her back to John Harvey Kellogg, Dr. Kellogg, and Battle Creek, best doctor in America, hoping he could fix her. But it was too far gone. And he told, John, uh, he told Jay and Andrews, your, your daughter's going to die. Don't spend any time with her. You'll catch it too. But he couldn't leave his daughter's side because she had been his rock while his, after his wife had passed away in Europe. She translated the magazines. She had been his support. He stayed by her bedside until she breathed her last breath. But it would be the cause of his own death as well. He would die in Basel, Switzerland about a year later from tuberculosis as well. At the young age of 54. The heritage we have are the sacrifice and commitment of the pioneers. I believe is a great heritage. And it's important for us to understand the stories in our family, to understand the legacy that we live in today. To understand the shadows that cast themselves upon our path. On the two-pound coin in England, along the side of the two-pound coin, it has the phrase, on the shoulders of giants. In many ways, we stand as Adventists today on the shoulders of giants. Not rich men, most of them are poor men and women, but the sacrifice and commitment they made cast a long shadow for us today. I want to share with you the sermon title uh, this evening is entitled Another Side of Adventism. Maybe you, you, you know what we're, what we're, everything we've shared tonight and everything we will share. And if you do, then praise the Lord. But I'm going to share with you maybe another side of Adventism that's not so well spoken of, I don't think. But also something that I believe is clear that we as a church should do today. In Matthew chapter 25... There's a, part, there's, there's a chapter there, Jesus is preaching. And in Matthew chapter 25, if you turn there in your Bibles, there, there's um, the end part of the chapter has a parable. Not so much a parable. That's not the right word. Jesus is speaking. The first part of the, of the chapter, he talks about the, the ten wise and the ten... And the ten um, it's not like the ten wise... The five wise and the five foolish virgins. 
Then the, part, the chapter goes and talks about the talents. And then at the end of the chapter, we're not going to read it in detail. At the end of the chapter, it starts there in verse... around verse 31, where you have the words of Jesus, where he talks about the sheep and the goats. He talks about those on his right and those on his left. And he says to them, come ye blessed of the Father, come inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you. And the Bible says there in, in verse 34, that's what he says, come inherit the kingdom. And verse 35 is that famous verse where Jesus says, For I was a hungry and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. Verse 36, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous, verse 37, will say, When did we see that? When did we see that? Or when did we do that? And that's when Jesus answered them in verse 40. And says, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it unto the what? Unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it what? Unto me. These people are serving Jesus, and they have no idea that they're serving Jesus. Because he says, hey, you did this to me, you did this to me, you did this to me. And they're like, when? When did that happen? And he says, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto what? Me. You know, Matthew chapter 25 contrasts in many ways with Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew 7, you may be familiar with those verses where Jesus says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not what? Prophesied. Have we not in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done many marvelous works in your name? Then I will say to them, I never what? I never knew you. Depart from me. It's interesting. In Matthew 7, you've got a group of people that come to Jesus and asking, in a sense, for their good grade report. Hey, Jesus, we did all these things. Please stamp our grade card. Mm -mm. No, I never knew you. In Matthew 25, though, you've got a group of people that are just bewildered, like, well, when did we do that? It's interesting that Matthew 7... The things that are mentioned, the preaching, the casting out demons, and the many marvelous things, most of those things are what is very overtly, publicly done by individuals. Preaching. Leading out. Lord, didn't you see me? Don't you know the years of service I put in? Everyone else can testify. Don't know you. Matthew 25, though, is largely what you would say is things that people don't take notice of. The stuff you do when no one's looking is Matthew 25. How are we as Adventists, how are we as Christians, individually, you, not as a church, you? Do we only want to do something if we make sure we get recognition for it? I remember once talking to someone, and they joked with me. I said, hey, do you want to come help out with something? I won't tell you what it is. Do you want to come help out with this project? And they jokingly said to me, will you get my picture in the messenger? Now, it was a joke, but you've heard the phrase, many a true word is said in what? Said in jest. It was almost like, yeah, yeah, I'll come help you, 
but, but come on, you got to give me some credit now. I've got to be on the front page. Don't want no page three or four or five. Do we do programs as a church just so we can write a healthy report to BUC News and Messenger? Do we do stuff for the recognition or do we do stuff because it's so natural we just do it? You know, we're blessed to have the spirit of prophecy, amen? The spirit of prophecy reflects in some of her books like a divine commentary on the Bible. Patriarchs and prophets, prophets and kings, desire of ages, acts of the apostles, they track the Bible through from Genesis all the way pretty much through to Revelation. And so it's interesting when you're reading those books, you can find chapters that match exactly the chapters you're reading in the Bible. And if you've never done that before, I would encourage you to do that. When you're reading certain chapters in the Old Testament on David or Goliath, then find the chapter that matches. Or Daniel in the lion's head. Find the chapter that matches because her thoughts enlarge on the passage. And she's written on Matthew 25. There's a whole chapter. It's called The Least of These, My Brethren. And in the first paragraph of that chapter in the book Desire of Ages, I believe it's chapter 74, page 638, it says, When the nations are gathered before him, there will be two classes, and their eternal destiny will be determined by what? Their eternal destiny will be determined by what they have done or neglected to do in the person of the poor and suffering. Now that's pretty profound. For this paragraph does not mention a doctrine. Or a teaching. But it mentions a way of life that should be manifest in God's church. What you do in the person of the what? Poor suffering. You know so often with a Western mindset, Protestant self-help and all that kind of stuff that we have, Protestant work ethic, So often we, we reason out of helping people because God helps those who help themselves. Right? So often we reason in our mind. Well, there was once upon a time that I helped someone who was less fortunate. I saw them on the street. I helped them. I gave them a bit of money. But, but then after I gave them money, I saw them go and buy. Hmm. And I read an article in the Daily Mail. How that half of the people on the street asking for money had these big homes in Eastern Europe. So I'm not giving. And we have all these rational ideas. See, part of the problem that we have is we want to be the silver bullet that solves someone's problems. So I see someone on the street, I help them out. Oh, and they came to church and got baptized and praise the Lord. And my picture got in the messenger. Like, we, we struggle with the mindset that I helped someone and their life just carried on the same for the next two years. Like, we, we really want our help to be the missing link. Not just another nameless face that comes by and, and does something. 
Maybe we're not always called to help the poor and the suffering and the less fortunate because we're going to remarkably change their life with one act of kindness. Maybe God wants to do something in our heart as well. Because none of us like the feeling of being rejected or a help kind of going to waste. But that's what Jesus felt when he was on earth for 33 years. And maybe God wants us to enter into his experience and know what it was like for him to feel that. Are we lacking this today? You know, I praise the Lord that the General Conference Youth Department in 2013 made an initiative called Global Youth Day. The reason why the youth director at the time made this initiative, and I remember when he brought the idea and we were discussing it as youth leaders or directors around the table, and there was all these pros and cons and criticism and this and this and this and this and this. He said, look, I just want young people to get a taste for community outreach. Then hopefully, if they enjoy it on that one day, it becomes more than a one-day event and becomes part of their lifestyle. That's all we're trying to do. That's it. We recognize they're not going to solve the world's problems in one day. But maybe that one day will inspire them to do something more. What's our heritage in this area? Like, what's our heritage as a church? We've looked historically where our doctrines came from, where the Sabbath came from, where the Second Coming came from, where the sanctuary message came from. We've looked historically some of the experiences, but what's our historic identity in this area? Do we even have one as a church? I would say we do. We have a strong identity here, but I would, my thought is, my thinking is, we've kind of forgotten this area. It's not at the forefront of us as a church. We're not really known for it anymore. We're not. We see that as small stuff. We have bigger, more loftier things to do. In the 1840s, slavery was an issue in America or a reality. In the southern states, you go there today, you drive past corn, uh, cotton field after cotton field. In the 1840s and 50s, that was harvested by hand, by slaves. Some slaves would escape, make their way to freedom, get past the Ohio River. That was kind of the line between the south and the north. And if you made it past that river, you were kind of safe. But not always. Some of you have seen the movie, read the book, 12 Years a Slave. It was a free man living in a northern state who got captured and sent back down to the south to work for 12 years as a slave. It wasn't a good time to be of the darker complexion in the United States of America, no matter where you were born. And a law was passed in 1850. A law was passed by Congress in 1850 called the Fugitive Slave Act. Hen Senator Henry Clay persuaded Congress to pass this act in 1850. It required how many people? All citizens to help 
catch runaway slaves. Anyone who aided a slave could be fined or imprisoned, and the fine was $1,000. In today's currency, that's at least $30,000 or 20,000 pounds. That was your fine for helping a runaway slave. It also, the runaway slave, sorry, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, denied fugitive slaves a right to a trial by jury. So here's the situation. You're a free, you're a free black man born in the northern states. But someone comes up and just says, hey, you're a runaway slave. I'm going to capture you. They capture you. And then what? You can't have trial by jury. It was denied to have a trial by jury. So then you just get caught and just taken, and you have to go and live as a slave, even though you never were a slave. Terrible, terrible law. 1850. This is a poster. Warning, caution, colored people of Boston. Basically, watch out for the police, because they're also working as kidnappers and slave catchers. This is the 1850s in the United States of America. But going on at this time, there was something, have you heard of the Underground Railroad? What was the Underground Railroad? Well, it was neither underground, nor was it a railroad. I don't know why they called it the Underground Railroad. Anyway, that's what they called it. It was a network of houses and farms and people that would assist someone who had escaped from slavery to go from the southern states all the way to the northern states, or particularly after this law of 1850, to get to Canada. And there's all this code. If you look at some of the, 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 the underground railroad songs, Wade in the Water, that was an escape song. Swing low, Wade in the Water so the dogs can't trace the scent. Swing low, Sweet Chariot, was Harriet Tubman's favorite song. The chariot was the railroad, Swing Low coming down to the south, but it's going to take you home to the north. There was all these coded messages in some of these songs today, and it's quite ironic that English rugby fans sing that at Twickenham whenever they play rugby. Having no idea the deeper meaning. Steal Away, that was another Underground Railroad song. You can go today to Battle Creek, Michigan, and they have the largest Underground Railroad monument in the United States of America. And there it stands. You can't, uh, uh, there, on that side there, that lady there is, anyone know who that is? That's Harriet Tubman, who was described as the Moses of her people for leading them from the south. Hundreds, thousands she led to freedom. And why am I sharing this with you? An interesting fact is this. The first general conference president we had was called John Byington. He used his farm in New York State as one of the stops or allowed his farm to be used as one of the stops on the Underground Railroad for people that wanted to get to Canada. Amen? Our first General Conference president was a part participant in the Underground Railroad. How did Ellen White and the early Adventists relate to this? Were they silent? Was the prophetic gift not used? And to me, when I read some of these quotes, it was great encouragement to realize that the prophetic gift God gave to Ellen White wasn't just about prophecy or testimonies for the church. It was about real social issues that people were going through in America at the time. 
She said, when the laws of man conflict with the law of God, we are to obey the latter, whatever the consequences may be. The law of our land requiring us to deliver a slave to his master, we are not to what? Don't obey that one. And then she goes further and says, and we must abide the consequences of violating this law. The slave is not the property of any man. God is his rightful master, and man has no right to take God's workmanship into his hands and claim him as his own. To me, I was encouraged when I read that. Hmm. The prophetic gift dealt with real issues. And our early Adventist pioneers were very active in this area. Very active. And it makes me wonder us as a church today, have we lost that edge that we had back then? That's what J.N. Loughborough said. The fugitive slave bill he described as a monster of human iniquity printed in the Advent Review and Sabbath Herald, 1858. Uriah Smith said, the free and the enslaved people of color have suffered and are suffering grievous wrongs at the hands of white inhabitants of the church and those who minister at the altar. Jay and Andrews said, the same government that utters the sentiment, talking about the Declaration of Independence, in the face of the Declaration will hold in abject servitude 3.2 million humans, rob them of their rights, with which they acknowledge that all men are endowed by their creator. Our early pioneers, that's Advent Review and Sabbath Herald, were writing in our church's paper very strongly on a, on a real social issue of the day, advocating for change and reform. He went on to say, Jay and Andrews, the institution of slavery is far more, sorry, is more especially manifest, thus far the dragon spirit that dwells in the heart of this hypocritical nation. Our early pioneers didn't just form the 28 fundamental, well, it wasn't 28 back then. Didn't just form the doctrines we have. They were advocates in other areas as well. J.N. Loughborough derided the Declaration of Independence by suggesting it should have a clause which states, all men are created free and equal except 3.5 million. You know, the Declaration of Independence says all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, that was framed by the early framers of the Constitution. And the reason why in their mind they could say, well, that's okay, because in their mind they had different views on what constituted a created being. J.N. Loughborough wrote strongly in what magazine? Advent Review and what? Sabbath Herald. James White, I, don't, I didn't have time to put the whole thing in, he wrote this poem, and Uriah Smith wrote this, a powerful poem on this subject as well. Uh, James White wrote this one, and it has about, I don't know, about 10 or 15 verses like that. Many things are esteemed sacred in America. The most sacred is slavery. The Constitution is held sacred, but not so sacred as slavery. When the two come in, con in contact, it is the Constitution that has to give way. When the Constitution is found to be against slavery, it's the Constitution that needs to be amended. And he went on and talked about when liberty comes in contact with slavery, when, when, when national right come in contact with slavery. He had this whole poem going through all these things. 
deriding in a very strong way the country of his birth, which is why the Advent Review and Sabbath Herald was banned in all the southern states. It was seen as being a magazine of abolition, a magazine inciting the people. And so it was banned. You couldn't buy or sell or have the Review and Herald in the South for that reason. For that reason. The sermon is, is talking about the other side of Adventism. In some ways, I think we've lost that other side today. Yeah, I know slavery is not around today, at least not in the, here. But are there other things that fit into the category of Matthew 25 that we're just not doing? Another issue that was around at the time was this. Those are two posters that were around. Help me to keep him pure. Please vote against all. Against the sale of liquors. Lips that touch liquor shall not touch ours. <laughs> that was their, their poster as they marched along. The temperance movement was very strong in the days of early Adventism. Eventually, by 1918, they banned the sale of liquor in America, which led to the prohibition of the 1920s, which didn't go so well. But early Adventists were strongly in favor of the temperance movement. Ellen White said in Gospel Workers, the advocates of temperance fail to do their whole duty unless they exert their influence by precept and example, by voice and pen and, what she say, vote. In favor of prohibition and total abstinence. Of all who claim to be numbered among the friends of temperance, Seventh-day Adventists should stand in the front ranks, she says. You know Ellen White? Have you ever read those quotations where it says she spoke to like 10,000 people, 20,000 people? You wonder, where did Ellen White speak to 20,000 people? There were barely that many Adventists back then. Ellen White spoke to an audience in Groveland, Massachusetts, without the aid of an electronic public address system, and she spoke to a gathering of 20,000 people. What was the gathering? All of her biggest audiences that she spoke to, including this one, were at temperance rallies, where she would speak at temperance rallies. This was actually at an Adventist campground, but the word was out that she was speaking on this subject, and so the whole public came to hear our prophet speak on temperance. They were strong advocates of the abolition, strong advocates of, of diet reform, strong advocates of temperance. It was part of their identity. It was part of who they were. There's even accounts that at one time, Ellen White spoke, and people could hear her distinctly one mile away. That was at another temperance gathering. She was preaching, and people heard her a mile away. Little five foot three women, woman. But she had cultivated the use, and that's another subject altogether the use of her diaphragm and lungs, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But she spoke to this large audience. We have this in our, in, in our past. Today we have a tension, at least in America and other parts of the Western world, between the secular liberals on the left and the Christian Republicans on the right. But there was a third group in the early, late 1800s. 
the third group, which is what the Adventists were part of, which was the dissenting or free Protestants. It was a different group to the t above two. Today in America, you just have these two. And there's a battle between the Democrats, the Republicans, between the secular liberals and the Christian Republicans. These guys harken back to Thomas Jefferson, and these guys harken back to an era when America was a Christian nation founded by Christians and should be reinstituted as a Christian nation today. But there was another side of America, and it's really this third group that founded the United States of America. As a church, we've almost forgotten that part of our identity the book, The Reformation, The Remnant by Nick Miller, it says the state should stay out of spiritual morality, but notions of public safety are directly affected by what? What's civil morality? And what's the difference between civil morality and spiritual morality? Civil morality deals with things that take place in civil society. Spiritual morality is things that... And as Adventists, we have a very clear understanding as to what civil morality and what spiritual morality. Civil morality is the last six commandments. Second table. Spiritual morality is the first table, first four commandments. And so we can have something that very helps us very clearly on where we can see the state intervening and where the state shouldn't. And it should not affect our views of the separation of church and state. It should not separate our views on, it should not affect our views on this subject. As a church, I think we have a strong background in this area, a background that maybe we have forgotten. Where are we today, church? Today you can go to Loma Linda University. You'll see you there, Loma Linda. They've got a monument there outside there on the common where they have the graduation exercises. And it's a monument of the Good Samaritan. Quite impressive. There it is. The man on the ground, other men walking by. But this should be more than a monument. It should be more than a story. It should infuse who we are as Christians. In John 13, verse 35, it says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have what? Love one to what? Another. Not just those we like, but those we don't like too. You know, when I would travel as an evangelist in America, I get to churches and invariably, without fail, every church I get to would tell me, you know, we're just we're not the biggest church here in Kansas, Nebraska, wherever. But we're a friendly church. Always be wary of a self-proclaimed friendly church. There's a difference between being friendly to your friends and being friendly to people. Big difference. Oh, we're so friendly. Everyone likes. By this shall men know you are my disciples, if you have love, what? One, two, another. Isaiah 1, verse 17. The verse that comes right before 18, which is, come now, let us reason together. We quote that all the time. Verse 17 says, learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widows. 
There's so many verses on this in the Bible. It should really form a part of who we are as a church. It should not just be a side thought. It should not just be something our young people will go out and do and give bottles of water to the homeless once a year on Global Youth Day. But it should really be a part of what we are known as a church. Not so we get more members, but because it's who we are. Because it's who we are. Unfortunately, though, I think in some ways, that's a part of our identity that's missing. Could it be that God's not waiting for doctrinal understanding amongst us, but rather practical application of the gospel to the world? In 1797, there was a woman who was born whose name was Isabel Baumfree. In New York State. In 1826, she escaped with her young daughter from her slave master. And for the rest of her life, she advocated strongly for abolition, strongly for the rights of women, etc., etc. And she changed her name from Isabel. The name she chose was Sojourner. Last name, Truth. Sojourner Truth. There's a statue of her in Battle Creek, Michigan. Just down the road from the Adventist Historic Village. She lived in Battle Creek, Michigan for 27 years. While she was there, she came in contact with all the prominent Adventists that you know. Loughborough, White, Kellogg. She came in contact with all of these. She knew them because they were advocating the same thing she was advocating. When she died, she had her funeral in the Battle Creek Dime Tabernacle. Same place Ellen White had her funeral. 3,000 people attended her funeral. Today, she's buried in the same graveyard Ellen White is buried in about 20 to 30 yards away. And here's something I didn't know. I don't know if you know. Before she died, she looked at the cause of her life that she had been fighting for. She met these Adventists that she had met. And she saw our church. She saw what we stood for. She saw our values, our principles, our theology. And Sojourner Truth died as a Seventh-day Adventist. Because when she looked at our church, I believe she saw it as the epitome of the gospel. Not so much, I don't think, for the theological stand that our pioneers had. Though I'm sure that was crucial because she was an honest woman. But I think it was also that as a church, she saw as epitomizing the gospel as well. They say she was baptized. I believe it's by Uriah Smith. She lies buried there. Probably one of the most famous Adventists who most of the world doesn't know was an Adventist.
Friends, what type of Adventist are you? Is there something missing from your identity? Maybe it's something you need to learn and study. Maybe it is you've heard of the sanctuary or the Sabbath, but you really can't defend it or give a coherent explanation of it either. If someone to ask you why you go to church on Sabbath, you would just say, well, it's the right day. But why? Well, it is. But why? Because it's in the Bible. Where? It's there. And at the same time, you're in high school doing your GCSEs and predicted to get an A in maths, English, and history. It should trouble your mind if that's the explanation you give for your faith. And I believe you should do something about it. Have Bible studies. Read books. Do something. Become intelligent about your faith. And if you're missing something there, find it. Claim it. Now, maybe you're clear on that, but maybe you're missing something in your own experience as a Christian. Maybe you're a Matthew 7 Christian, and you're not really a Matthew 25 Christian. And you need to really take on board what's in Matthew 25. Be less concerned about the outward and more concerned about what's private and what people see you doing when you're out and about. And if you're missing that, then ask God to provide opportunities for you to develop there as well. Sometimes you don't have to go far. You could be in school. It could be the kid who's getting bullied in class. It could be the kid that no one wants to be friends with. And the Lord says, go talk. Go sit next to. Go be a friend there. And make a difference in the world one life and one contact at a time. May God help us in whatever area of Adventism that we might be missing, that we can claim it to understand a full picture and epitomize a full picture of our identity. Let's bow our heads as we close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we pause to thank you for the rich heritage that we have as a church, a heritage built on the Bible, and a heritage I believe epitomized in a reflection of the life of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for our early pioneers who've gone before us and the examples that they have laid down for us. Lord, I pray that in whatever area of our Christian experience we may be in lack, Convict us, Lord, and show us where that may be. And lead and guide us as we seek to have an identity that's fully rounded in Jesus Christ. Bless us, Lord, individually, and bless this church at large. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.